Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. And uh, Lord, we just want to hear from you this morning. And we pray that you just speak to our hearts as only you can do through just the, the glorious beauty of your word combined with the inside of your Holy Spirit to speak to our hearts so supernaturally, Lord. It's such a, such a blessing. So we pray, Lord, that you'd have your way with us and that you would just teach us now and guide us and lead us. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn, if you would, to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 11. What a great book. Wow, what a book. Colossians. Uh, amen, thank you. We're getting... Um, we're getting into this. So, you know, um, somebody's talking earlier about, do you ever notice that when a, uh, let's say a cult group or any, any um, teaching or whatever goes to, goes off, we'll say, dangerously, one of the hallmarks of that is, what do they do with Jesus, right? What do they do with Jesus? Is Jesus preeminent? Is Jesus uh, the, um, the author and finisher of our faith? Is Jesus uh, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of overall creation? Is, uh, can we say of Jesus that in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily? All of, all of that sort of thing. And so I love the book of Colossians in that it doesn't like, as we've said before, it doesn't like um, uh, say, okay, we're going to deal with this fallacy this way, and we're going to deal with this fallacy this way. Instead, it just points our attention back to Jesus. And so that's really what this book is, is about. And so just as a review thus far, uh, chapter one told us that Jesus was preeminent. He was the head of the body of Christ. He holds the world together, all of that kind of stuff. Chapter 2 started out, last week we read the first 10 verses, started out that as we journey through life, as we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, as we keep our focus on Jesus, then our journey through life kind of stays in proper perspective. And uh, uh, Paul's words were to uh, keep us from getting distracted, or as Paul's words that he used, deceived or cheated. Those are pretty strong words, honestly. He says, don't be cheated, don't be deceived by philosophy, by persuasive words, by the wisdom of man, by the traditions of men, all of that sort of thing. So, you know, we see that Jesus is the head, Jesus is our focal point, and as we walk through this journey of life, we don't let, you know, the world's uh, deception and all of that kind of take our focus off of the fact that Jesus is where we're headed. And, um, and so that's kind of what it brings us up to, to this point. And so we pick up the second half of chapter two, really uh, with a discussion about sort of an ongoing discussion about that journey of the Christian life that we're living. But as, as opposed to like last week was more, you know, don't be strayed from the path by uh, the traditions of men and worldly philosophies and stuff like that. Today we talk about a little bit how do we personally 
you know, the, how do we deal with our own personal sinfulness and what's the, um, I won't say the best way, but how, how does our focus on Jesus affect that? Is that fair? So that's, that's sort of the landscape. Um, and uh, that carries us into chap- in chapter 10 verse, I'm sorry, chapter 2. There's not 10 chapters in Colossians. Chapter 2, verse 11. It says, In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So there is a mouthful in that verse. And so we're going to kind of break it apart a little bit, right? I like that we start out today reading those words, In him. Because that changes everything, right? That changes everything. We've been talking about him since we started Colossians, and now we read in him, and that is the context of the life that we're talking about. I love 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, very familiar verse, says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now, does that mean once I'm in Christ, once I become a Christian, then there's nothing of of my old life that, there's nothing of my new life that resembles my old life? Is that what that means? No, unfortunately not. There's still some of my old life that hangs around, right? But what it does mean is everything's new, right? When I become a Christian, when I am in Christ, everything's, it's, it's a game changer. Everything is different. My life is different. My priorities are different. What I care about is different. Who I care about is different. How I look at world events is different. How I look at social events is different. Everything is different because once I am in Christ, I'm a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now, so he goes on. He says, in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Now, keep in mind the cultural context. In the cultural context, you've got Jew and Gentile. All right? The Colossians were largely a Gentile uh, church, so they were sort of Gentile Christians. There were also Jewish Christians. There were also Jewish Jews, right? And the hallmark, one of the, uh, one of the, the pillars, if you will, of, of being a Jew was that the males were circumcised, okay? And, uh, and it became such a, an issue that the Jewish people that became Christians, right? Because in that, you know, that first century, a lot of the Jewish people became Christians, they still had a, uh, this idea that, yeah, you got to follow Christ and be circumcised. Well, that was like an extra burden to the Gentile Christians. Now they're kind of like, well, what do I do with that? And much of the New Testament, as we've talked about many times, relates to that question and, and all of that. But you've got to keep in mind that circumcision was a, uh, very much a part of the religious and cultural dialogue that went on, right? Now... We need to treat this with dignity, right? Circumcision, you could kind of, you kind of get a little squeamish when you talk about circumcision, right? 
Like, you could ask questions like, how do they know who was circumcised, right? Stuff like that, right? I know you're thinking that, so I just said it. There are lots of questions that come up related to circumcision that I won't answer here, okay? But, you know, so, but I think we can't ignore it, okay? Is that fair? So I, I'll give it all the dignity it deserves here. But consider, consider just, just physically what we're talking about, okay? And again, I want to handle this without making anybody blush, especially me, all right? This was a removal of flesh from a male Jew. Fair enough? Removal of some flesh from the male Jew. Now, when we talk about the flesh, when the Bible talks about the flesh, we're not talking just about a piece of skin, right? We're talking about the flesh. We're talking about my selfish desires, my sinful nature. That's my flesh. Even sometimes uh, in the context of Scripture, we talk about my flesh, meaning my, my own desire to do the right thing from my own strength, like my own strength kind of flesh. We talk about that that's really not an adequate sort of type of flesh or an amount of flesh or whatever you want to call it to reach uh, holy living. Is that fair? So it's like even my efforts, my, my, my efforts within myself without the help of God is my flesh. Well, certainly my sinful appetites are also my flesh. So does that make sense? So, you know, this stuff that hangs on my arm is called flesh, right? But also my sinful nature is called my flesh. And also the part of me that wants to try to be good is called my flesh. So we have to kind of keep those things together. Is that fair? In our minds, at least a little bit. So... Interestingly, when I think about the flesh of my sinful nature, and this is where I'm trying to get, where I got to be careful. When I talk about the flesh of my sinful nature, there's no like body part that represents my pride. Is that fair? There's no body part that represents my um, desire for gluttony. Okay? There's no body part that represents my covetousness. Right now, there is a bar. I was I was thinking about this. I was kind of carrying this in my mind. You know, sometimes I, my family wonders, what is he doing when he's sitting there on the front porch, and he says he's working on his Bible study, and it looks to me like his mind is wandering. Well, right now you'll know what. In my mind, I think, well, my tongue is capable of some sin, right? Thankfully, God didn't circumcise my tongue. That would have been awkward, right? Painful, awkward, lots of things. But again, delicately, there is a part of the human body that is responsible for an awful lot of sin in human history. Is that fair? And it's curious to me that that happens to be the... 
area of physical flesh that God, in his anatomic design, chose to have a little extra physical flesh that could be removed as a part of a ceremonial mandate to his Jewish people. Do we get through that okay? Okay, good. So God gives us this lesson, right? And again, candidly, every time a male Jew would need to relieve himself, he's reminded that he's a Jew, set apart by God, according to the ordinance that was instructed to the, the priest who would have done that procedure at that time. And so we have this lesson. We have this illustration specifically related to, you know, that doesn't represent all sin, but it's a pretty good representative of sinful man, sinful nature. Um, why did, why was there not a, you know, why only men, you know, well, that gets calm. I don't know, right? Why wasn't there a sort of, why didn't the women get their tongues, uh, the end of their tongues cut off? I don't know. But somehow the men are accountable, the men are responsible, and uh, apparently, and, and it's, it's reasonable to say that the men need a more constant reminder uh, of their sin and of their need to be separated by God. So in the Old Testament, they were physically circumcised, okay? So he says, in him, in Jesus, you were also circumcised, right? But this is a different kind of circumcision. And so it's important, I think, that we have that background, that the Jewish mindset would have had that background, that we're talking about a type of physical flesh that represents a type of sinful flesh, right? And, and yet in him, we were also circumcised. Like in those days, you know, the priest would have circumcised, uh, a, a Jewish male baby. But now we are circumcised by a different circumcision, the circumcision made without hands. And it's not just that aspect of our anatomy. It's by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So what a beautiful thing. We get to experience, all of us as Christians, the circumcision of Christ that's made without hands. It's a supernatural work of Christ. Man's hands, man's scalpel have nothing to do, have no involvement in this circumcision that we're talking about. And so, interestingly, it's putting off the body of the sins of the flesh. This word putting off. So he says, in him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh. So literally the circumcision that we're talking about is that Jesus, because we're in him, Jesus takes that sinful nature of us and he removes it. He, he, so we can put it off. Interestingly, there are a couple different Greek words that are translated put off. One is like, you think about when you put off your clothes, right? Now, if you fell in the mud, fell in a mud puddle, 
you're walking along the river, you slipped, you fell in. You would take your clothes off, you'd put on new clothes, and where would you put those dirty clothes? In the laundry. Fair enough? If you fell in the sewer, right? Trying to be delicate, right? But you fell somehow, you somehow found yourself maybe even just a part of your legs, right? Not like you're swimming, right? But you found yourself in some, in some raw sewage. And you take those pants off. Would you put them in the laundry? Some of you would. Where would most of us put those pants? In the trash, right? So it's interesting to me that one of the one of the Greek words that's translated "put off" is like is like put them off and throw them in the laundry. One of them is like put off and throw them in the trash. You want to guess which word this is? Throw them in the trash, right? So our sinful nature, the body of the sins of the flesh, has been put off and thrown in the trash by this new kind of circumcision that we've been given because we're in Christ. Does that make sense? So what he's doing is he's taken the Old Testament picture that we have of circumcision, which kind of makes you, kind of brings an answer to the question, why did God do that back in the Old Testament, right? Because everything back there points to Jesus, right? Because God knew when he was writing the book of, you know, I think it's first mentioned in, well, it's in, it's in Genesis, uh, Abraham and all of them, right? Abraham and his family. It's first mentioned there, right? God knew when he was talking to Abraham, dealing with Abraham, that he'd be writing the book of Colossians, right? And he knew that there was a, okay, can you imagine Abraham? God says, hey, I want you to circumcise yourself and everybody else. He would say, say what? And can you explain to me why? Right? Why? Because God loves to develop these pictures from the Old Testament that point us to really what's really going on, and that is Jesus removes our flesh and throws it in the trash. Right? So that's the, in him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by the putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So that's the picture. So we now have a new sort of picture of circumcision. He gives us another uh, picture that he's going to talk about. Buried with, verse 12, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So another mouthful. Baptism is a similar reminder of the death and resurrection of Jesus, right? And the symbolism in baptism is, you know, our old man, our, our sinful man goes into the water, right? And the water represents the grave, okay? So we're go, we go down in the water and sort of, 
again, if you the the imagery that that we're supposed to glean from this is the old sinful nature that we have is left in the water. It's left in the grave. And just like Jesus was raised from the dead, we also are raised in Christ. And when we come up out of the dead, the sinful nature is, is left in the, in the water, in the grave. So we have two examples here where our sinful nature has been dealt with. And it's important that we keep that in mind, that that's sort of the, um, the, uh, the framework that our thinking is based on. Because here's the deal. As Christians, do we still sin? Seriously, that's all you got? Casual nods. <laughs> you don't. Okay, oh, let me try again. As Christians, do I still sin? Oh, yeah, I got a resounding, yeah, absolutely, yeah. As Christians, we sin, right? Do we sin because we are a slave to sin? No. We sin, do we sin because our flesh is like so a part of who we are that it's like we can't get away from it, and we say things like, I just don't know what happened. Or, the devil made me do it. Or, some other lame excuse. Right? Is that how it works? No. We sin because we stumbled. We sin because we've not arrived at that point of, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And we're still humans. Okay? But sin doesn't have uh, the same power over us that it had before we were Christians. Is that fair? Okay, so baptism is just another picture, just like the circumcision, the sin is, the, the flesh has been removed by Jesus. Baptism, the flesh has been sort of dead and buried. Our old man, our life without Jesus is dead and buried, and God resurrects us just like he resurrected Jesus. Now, the same sort of thing, we can't circumcise ourselves spiritually, right? We can't raise ourselves from the dead spiritually, right, or even physically, but that should affect how we live. Turn back to the left, Romans chapter 6. When you're there, say there. Romans chapter 6, verse 1, starting in verse 1. Now, Paul's going through, you know, up the first five chapters of Romans, Paul's been talking about basically, yep, we're all sinners. And he goes through this incredibly articulate argument. Uh, yes, we're all sinners. And now we're, and now as Christians, we're saved and we're, and we're set free. But he said, he could, he picks this up in chapter six. What should we say then? Shall we continue in, in sin that grace may abound? So he's been talking about grace, right? Where when, because we're sinners, we can't save ourselves. We're saved by grace. And so the logical or seemingly logical response to that is, well, cool. So you mean everything I've ever done or ever will do, I'm forgiven of? And that's called grace? And we'd say, yeah, right? So you might be inclined to say, cool, 
so I can live however I want and do whatever I want because it's all forgiven. Is that how it works? No. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. For if we had been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. So it's like, yep, we, we, when we go down in the water, we're identifying with the death of Jesus. And when we come up out of the water, then we're identifying with the resurrection of Jesus. And as a result, we should walk differently. We should walk in newness of life. So if we've, if we've been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we, all, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, just like throwing the dirty laundry in the trash. The body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Turn back to Colossians. This is an important concept, and yet it's, it's, uh, it's a little bit hard to get our heads around. But that is this. We are not slaves of sin. We, when we sin, we choose to do so. We're not like paralyzed victims of our sin nature. Now, why do I say that? Because sometimes we act like paralyzed victims of our sin nature. Oh, I just can't. No, I just can't. I just can't overcome that thing. Now, I understand that thing can be a stronghold, right? I get that. We all have them in our, in our journey, right? But know this. Know that Jesus gives us the power over that sin. First John tells us, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world, right? The Holy Spirit who rose Jesus from the dead, uh, Romans chapter 8, is the same Holy Spirit who lives in us as Christians. So we do have the power. So here's, the th here's what I'm, what I, if, if you stumble and fall, I don't want to make you feel beat up. There's forgiveness there. There's grace there. We call that stumbling. We don't call that crashing. We call it stumbling, right? But if we just sort of say, well, I just don't have any strength over that sin problem. It's too big for me. That's a lie from hell. That's a lie from hell. It's not consistent with Colossians chapter 2 and Romans chapter 6. So we do have the strength through Jesus over that sin. That flesh has been circumcised, if you will, and thrown into the trash, right? That old man has been left in the water of baptism. Now, does that mean that you have to be baptized, water baptized in order to be saved? Absolutely not. It's just a picture that he's given us, okay? It's just a, a uh, it's, it's, a, it's a, a metaphor, just like 
circumcision is a metaphor. It's for our, for our reminder so we can learn and understand these things. Verse 13. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. And so now he's combining, Paul is combining sort of the image of circumcision and baptism to make the point. Our trespasses and our uncircumcision have been killed. And now we've been made alive together with Christ. Notice that where he says here, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Now that Greek word for all can be translated all. Right? How much of our sin can we be forgiven of? All. All. All trespasses. It's all taken care of. And I tell you this again, because there are way too many people walking around in the world that are self-condemning because, well, I understand that God forgives sin. I understand that Jesus hung on a cross to pay the price for my sin, but I just have a hard time understanding or accepting that he would forgive that one sin that I've done or that I did or even that I'm still struggling with, right? He's having forgiven you all trespasses. Verse 14, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. So our lives are no longer a list of do's and don'ts. Oh, if we could get this through our Christian religious heads and hearts and lives. That our lives, our Christian experience is not a list of do's and don'ts. He has wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he's taken it out of the way and nailed it to the cross. You know, the Old Testament law, do this, do this, do this, do this. Again, it was just a picture of the inadequacy. I mean, the Old, the Old Testament law was a picture of the inadequacy of human effort, even by the best of us, to attain righteousness. We can't do it. We can't do it. They couldn't do it. We couldn't do it. And so uh, that, the requirements, if you will, that was against us, the, the things that we have to do in order to be righteous, that's been um, nailed to the cross. What a great picture. So what our job is to do is to appreciate what God has done for us and live accordingly. Simple as that. Verse 15, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. So not only has he dealt with our, our flesh and thrown it in the trash, but he also deals with uh, principalities and powers and their dominion over us. Okay, again, greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world, right? Again, we can't say the devil made me do it. Principalities and powers made me do it. Boy, that demon's really messing with me. You ever hear that? That demon of lust is really messing with me. No, you're just kind of choosing to not walk in victory. That demon of lust has been dealt with. Having disarmed 
principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them, over them in it. So uh, the devil doesn't make us do anything, and our flesh doesn't make us do anything. Sometimes we choose to stumble, and there's grace for that. But we need to know, understand uh, where the power is. The power is given to us for us to walk in. So it goes on, verse 16, a little bit of a transition. Let no one judge you. So let no one judge you in food or drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. So this idea of, you know, Christianity being a list of do's and don'ts, right? Well, the Jews were all about do's and don'ts. They felt like if they could do enough do's and, and all of that, then they were good. But it had nothing to do with that. It has to do with our righteousness through Christ. And what he says here then is, so don't let anybody judge you because they're doing all their dues and you're not doing it according to, and you're just trying to follow the Lord. Does that make sense? Picture it this way. Let's say... You're just trying to follow the Lord. And you meet up with somebody, maybe a coworker or somebody. Then you find out they're a Christian too. And you think you're doing okay. You're trying to just put one foot in front of the other. And you see this as a struggle and a journey. And, and you've got challenges and you've got victories. And, and, you know, but you kind of, you're at least moving, you're, you're, you're moving the right direction. Okay. And your new friend is like got the perfect haircut and he uh, always talks in King James and, you know, everything about him is just like squeaky clean, right? And is that okay? Can that guy be that, that guy? Yes, until he decides that you need to be like him, right? Now we have identified a heart issue in this guy, right? Because if you're following the Lord and you're just trying to put one foot in front of the other and you feel like really the Lord would be best honored if you got a haircut, you get a haircut, right? If you feel like the Lord would be best honored if you'd dress up for church, dress up for church. But the moment you think that that's a thing, then you're off. Right? And it's delicate. It's delicate. But he says, those things have been disarmed, right? And nailed to the cross. The handwriting of requirement that was against us has been nailed to the cross. The whole idea of we can earn anything or God will like us better if we do some, something is where we get off. So we've got to be very, very careful. Very careful. You know, I think, here's how I think of it. God wants relationship with us, right? You've heard me say this a million times. God knew that we were sinners. God, God knew that that sin uh, is a deal breaker for fellowship with us and him. And so he made the way available by coming in the form of Jesus Christ, taking on human, human nature, 
fully God, fully man, dies on a cross, raised from the dead, goes through all of that for the purpose, please get this, for the purpose of having restored fellowship with us. He wants to be our friend daily, hourly. He wants, us, he wants to be our friend. He wants to hang with us. He wants us to come to him with our problems. He wants to come to him with our victories. He wants to be our friend. And we sort of start to understand that. And then some guy that we meet at work says, well, you know, if you really want to be his friend, you should do this, get a haircut, right? Whatever your thing is. Doesn't that cheapen that relationship, right? It makes it cheap. It's kind of like, you don't get the point. Like he hung on a cross, so we wouldn't have to worry about that kind of craziness, right? Here's another example, right? I just throw out random examples, you know, hoping one of them will stick, right? You invite me over to dinner, right? I come, you serve me a nice meal, right? At the end of dinner, I offer to pay for it. Is that weird? That's weird. If you come to my house for dinner, it's free, right? You come to my house for dinner, offer to pay for it. That's weird. That, that just killed the relationship. Well, I mean, it didn't kill it. It injured it, right? It made it weird. It took us from, man, we're hanging out, to all of a sudden, Really? You think I might want you to pay me for dinner? Seriously? It, it's, it's like it throws a whole new language into the dialogue of we're just hanging out having fellowship. Why did Jesus die on a cross for us? To hang out have fellowship and to live with him eternally and to make it all possible. Right? So that flesh, he dealt with it. That old man is buried in baptism. And so, so is the requirements of do's and don'ts to obtain that righteousness because we need to remember that he already took care of everything. So don't let anybody lay that stuff on us. Those are all a shadow of things to come, but the substance, the substance is of Christ. Let no one cheat you. I like this, again, that word cheat, right? Let no one cheat you. Let no one cheapen the fellowship. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and the worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up in his, by his fleshly mind. What does that religious guy look like that you met at work that's like, doing all the right things, at least in his mind. Is he humble or is he kind of pompous? Pompous. Can I tell you something, just transparently? There are a few things that are more obnoxious in this world than a pompous Christian. 
I wish there were zero of them. I wish that I were never one of them. But I know of nothing that is more of a turnoff to the world than a pompous Christian. I've had coworkers before that I've had to, I've had coworkers, I remember one time, this is, this is back in Indianapolis in the, in the early 90s, but it sticks in my mind. There was an extremely pompous Christian that worked with us, right? And I'm trying to sort of reach out to this other person that works here. And this other person, you know what the first thing that came out of her mouth was? Oh, you mean like him? Right? Right? He killed my evangelism. While he wears his James Kennedy evangelism explosion uh, program thing pin on his lapel. Right? He's all about, he's all about, man, he's asking everybody the right questions, and he's got the, he's got the script memorized, and all that, and I just try to have a simple, like, chill conversation with this nurse about the Lord, and all she can say is, oh, you mean like him? Right? So let no one cheat you of your reward. Taking delight in false humility, the worship of angels, religious stuff, including those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by the fleshly mind. And not holding fast to the head. Let's us just be people that hold fast to the head, from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. Don't you love the contrast that Paul gives us? Yeah, tell you what, you can get the right haircut, and you can, you can uh, know the script for evangelism, and, and you can do all of that and do all that, or you can just... Hang on to the head, holding fast to the head. I like this. Holding fast to the head who basically nourishes and knits together the body. The head is Jesus. The body is us. Isn't that a much better picture? Right? Does the human body work according to a script? Right? Does the heart say to the brain, uh, should I beat now? Right? No, it just kind of happens right? Everything's subject to the head, and it all just kind of happens. Why does it all just kind of happen? Because the head is orchestrating everything. How much more so the body of Christ being divinely orchestrated by the head, Jesus. And he does an infinitely better job at orchestrating not only my life, but us as a body, than we do. Nourished, doesn't this just sound healthy? The head, from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, it grows with the increase that is from God. Who makes us grow? God does. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle which all concern things which perish with the using according to the commandments and doctrines of men. So you get this? Please get this. Please get this. Why, if Jesus has put away our flesh and thrown it in the trash, 
if Jesus has buried our old man in baptism, give us the image of, of Jesus burying our old man in baptism and being raised with him and walking in newness of life. Why, as we do that, do we then subject ourselves to do's and don'ts? It's like New Year's resolutions, right? Has anybody ever had a New Year's resolution that stuck past February? I mean, somebody should write a book, right? Surveys of the resolutioners, right? Got one that stood till maybe January the 4th, one January 12th, you know, uh, super motivated guy with short hair got one that's, you know, made it to January 31st, but nobody gets them to February. And how about this? As Christians, okay, so that's, that's New Year's resolutions. As Christians, have you ever noticed, and maybe you've noticed this in your own life, I certainly have, sometimes you're like, you know what, I'm going to do a better job of this. I see this deficiency in my life. I'm really working on this. I'm going to really, is that all bad? No, that's not bad. But knowing this, if I don't ask God to do that thing through me, how sustainable is it? Not very. Do you ever notice in the body of Christ that Christian, let me just put it this way, Christian zeal. Do you ever notice in the body of Christ that Christian zeal kind of goes like this, up and down a little bit? You ever notice that? Yeah. I have. Now, you know, I'm not beating anybody up if, you're on a, if, if you've noticed that in your own life, because we all have, to a certain extent, right? But, you know, there ought to be a point in which, even if we have ups and downs, we're at least, you know, moving toward Christ, right? But so much, it's like, you know, you'll, you'll have fellowship with somebody in the body of Christ, and you'll say, wait a minute, where, where, where happened to so-and-so? You know, I don't know. Last I heard, they were whatever. Do's and don'ts don't sustain anybody. They don't sustain anybody. These things, verse 23, indeed have an appearance of wisdom and self-imposed religion. Don't those things look good? I mean, if I came in here and well, you'd know, you'd see right through it. But it, it, when you know somebody, when you first meet somebody, let's say, for example, and it seems like they are just clicking, right? Have you ever met these people? They're just clicking. Man, they're in church whenever the doors are open. They give all their money. You know, they, they make sure you know how much they give. And they do this and they do that and they never cuss. They don't even, they don't even have a temper. They're like squeaky clean. You get to know them for six months, and you're like, I haven't found a, 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 a defect, <laughs> right? They look good. These things have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed. And if those things are sincere and from the Lord, awesome. I mean, can God make people like that? Yeah. And we know those people too, right? These things have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion false humility, neglect of the body, but they're of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. That's a powerful line right there. It's underlined in my Bible. But are of no value in the indul against the indulgence of the flesh. Religion does not 
bring holiness. Religion does not bring holiness. You know, if man's efforts couldn't save us, are we saved by faith or works? Faith. Grace through faith. Ephesians chapter 2. We're saved by grace through faith. And not of works, lest anyone should boast. If we're not saved by works, then let's not act like we are... Uh, our, our, our daily Christian life is by works. Does that make sense? We're not saved by works, so we can't grow by works. We're saved by Jesus Christ. We grow by Jesus Christ. Paul said it this way in, in Galatians. Having begun in the Spirit, are you now making yourself perfect in the flesh? No, we can't do that. Right? So, we do need help. The truth is, we do need help, even daily, with our struggle against the flesh. We know that. The point is, Jesus is the answer. Imposing, on our, imposing rules on ourselves gives us no strength against the power of the flesh. No strength against the power of the flesh. Jesus did all the work not only to save us, but also to have fellowship with us. Our job is to appreciate it and live accordingly and make it no more complicated than that. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you died for us. We thank you that you removed with that circumcision that only you can do, you removed our flesh and you threw it away. And Lord, that we can now be resurrected with you and walk in newness of life. And so Lord, help us just to enjoy and appreciate fellowship with you. Help us to not cheapen it by trying to be good on our own, to earn some kind of points or earn some kind of favor with you, but help us just to enjoy fellowship with you. And Lord, we ask that um, you would do that work in our hearts. And Lord, those areas where we struggle, we do pray that you would give us victory that you would help us overcome, that you would see us through, and that you would guide us and lead us. Lord, please have your way with us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Everybody have an awesome, awesome week.